Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros. House of the Dragon, Season 1, Preview. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy. It's so great to be here to begin our coverage of House of the Dragon. Today we'll start with a preview of what's to come in this much-anticipated Game of Thrones prequel adaptation. We'll be broadcasting every Tuesday at 7 Eastern Time through the season with a podcast version coming out either late Tuesday or early Wednesday. Given we're hardcore Book readers familiar with the text will keep things only vaguely spoilery at the beginning of the episode, but we will have a deep spoilery talk later on and we'll give you a heads up for that. So we really hope that you're going to stay with us and hear our takes. As we said, we're all invested book readers and can't wait to share our insights with you. And so first off, let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hi. Hi, everybody. Oh, so excited to be here. Excited to start on this journey with you all, a uh, brand new TV show for us to all be excited about for the next really 12 weeks. We'll be talking about this. So let's go and let me introduce and welcome our guest for the entirety of the season. It's Emily the Erie. Hey. Hey. Excited to be back with you guys. Yay. We're <laughs> glad to have you. All right. Let's get started. Today we're going to be looking at characters dragons the trailers and telling you what we're most looking forward to in this season and beyond and uh, before we start we want to take a moment to acknowledge that radio westeros is supported by patrons to whom we are eternally grateful uh, patrons do get regular uh, access to early access to regular podcasts they get the ad-free podcast feed access to bonus content among other things. So check out our campaign at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros for more details. And right now, uh, we want to thank the following patrons. Our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltu, John Wargarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And uh, now, why don't we throw it over to you, Yoke Boy? Yeah, okay. So why don't we get going with some analysis? I can't wait. To begin, let's have a brief rundown of the backstory leading in to the first episode. Lady Gwyn, why don't you tell us about what came before the House of the Dragon era and how that sets up the action to come? Okay. 
Our story begins <laughs> about a century after Aegon's conquest. Uh, the conqueror's two sons ruled after him in succession. The second one, Magor the Cruel, killed his brother Aenys's son Aegon the Uncrowned to take the crown for himself. But after Magor's own death, killed by the Iron Throne, don't you know? <laughs> Another nephew, uh, Jaehaerys claimed the throne with his sister wife, Alysanne, as his queen. Jaehaerys' reign was, for the most part, a time of peace and prosperity in Westeros, and the dynasty flourished. Jaehaerys and Alysanne, who are the grandchildren of Aegon the Conqueror, had 13 children of their own, and four of those children had offspring in turn. Their son, Aemon, was the eldest. He married his mother and father's half-sister, Jocelyn Baratheon, as you do, he and they had a daughter called Rhaenys, who was named after his great-grandmother. The next son was Balon, who married his sister Alyssa, and they fathered, they had two sons together who lived to adulthood, Viserys and Daemon. Aemon and Balon's younger sister, Princess Daela, married Lord Roderick Allen of the Vale and died giving birth to her first child, a girl called Emma Arryn. So right there, you've got a number of key characters who are going to appear in the first episode. Jaehaerys, now an old man in the twilight of his reign, and his grandchildren, Princess Rhaenys, Princess Viserys, <laughs> Princess Viserys and Daemon, and Emma Arryn. More on all of them shortly. But remember I mentioned Jaehaerys' two eldest sons? Well, they're very important, though they're going to be dead before the show begins. Aemon died when he was shot by a crossbow of a Mirish pirate on the Isle of Tarth in 92 AC. That's about nine years before the events of episode one. Aemon left behind his daughter, who we mentioned, Rhaenys, who was 18 years old, had married Lord Corlys Valerian of Driftmark, and was expecting her first child. After his eldest son's death, Jaehaerys was faced with a choice. Should he name his granddaughter Princess of Dragonstone and his heir, or adhere to what appeared to be the established tradition and name his eldest, next eldest son, Balon, as his heir? To uh, Queen Alysanne's dismay, Jaehaerys chose Balon, passing over not only Princess Rhaenys, but her unborn child, who many pointed out could certainly have been a boy. But Balon was a grown man. He had two sons of his own, though he was now widowed since his sister wife Alyssa's death some years earlier, and he was very popular with the lords and small folk. So Alysanne may have disagreed with her husband's choice, and uh, certainly his granddaughter and her husband and a handful of others did as well, but most people agreed that Balon would be a good king when his father died. However, Less than a decade later, just months after the death of good Queen Alley from something that sounds like cancer, Balon, now Prince of Dragonstone, would die of a burst belly, probably appendicitis, and Jaehaerys is faced with another succession crisis. Should he name Balon's son Viserys as successor, or should he reconsider the claim of his granddaughter Princess Rhaenys, who is now putting forth her seven-year-old son, Laenor, as the rightful heir? The old king couldn't bring himself to make the choice, and so he summoned the lords of the realm to Harrenhal to meet and discuss the various claims and decide who the heir should be. Basically, he copped out. <laughs> and this right here is the event that House of the Dragon will begin with, the Great Council of 101. 
Excellent, thank you. So we'll have a more in-depth discussion of the Great Council in our coverage next week. But for now, as you can imagine, there will be a lot of characters in the show and a lot of them will be Targaryens more than at any time other in the history of their dynasty. So let's go ahead and introduce some of these characters, who they are, their place in the family or courts, their backgrounds prior to 101 when the show begins, and we'll also identify the actors who are going to play them. Note that there will be a couple of time skips throughout this season, so we'll avoid characters who come into the story after those jumps and focus for the most part on who we'll see in the first several episodes. And speaking of time skips, because of that structure, some of the characters will be portrayed by two actors, a child and an adult version, and we will identify both, even if if it might be some time before that adult actor is seen on screen. So let's get going with this family tree discussion. Emily, would you like to talk to us about Jaehaerys? Yes, I would. So as Lady Gwen mentioned, going into the era of House of the Dragon, Westeros has been experiencing a time of peace. Much of this can be attributed to King Jaehaerys I, otherwise known as Jaehaerys the Conciliator, Jaehaerys the Wise, or as we'll likely see him in House of the Dragon, the Old King. He and his sister wife, Alysanne, ruled the Seven Kingdoms together for decades, his reign ultimately being the longest of any Targaryen monarch, even through the events of the main series. So just longest, oldest king in history. He was an amiable king who did much to bind up old wounds between his vassals, and the length of his reign alone provided the realm some much-needed stability for the second half of the first century of Targaryen rule. Queen Alysanne did much to bolster or even improve her husband's image. She held women's courts. She visited the wall with her dragon. She was instrumental in championing women's rights uh, in a very patriarchal society. She also championed the rights of inheritance of her daughters, uh, something that led to some of the only disagreements in her marriage to King Jaehaerys. Lady Gwyn's already given us kind of a nice high-level history of the recent succession troubles that plagued House Targaryen in the lead-up to the, the show's timeline. House of the Dragon will open with the Great Council of 101, wherein King Jaehaerys grants the choice of his heir to his lords, skirting the choice between the claimant from the male line, from second-born Balon to his son Viserys, and another from the female line, from his first-born Aemon through his Aemon's daughter Rhaenys to her second-born son Laenor. King Jaehaerys only appears in one episode, according to IMDb, um, as much of his life happens before the events of that great council. He is portrayed by Scottish actor Michael Carter, who uh, has a lot of fantasy and sci-fi credits, uh, best known for his role as Bib Fortuna in Return of the Jedi. Excellent. So why don't I tell you all about Viserys Targaryen? He is the grandson of King Jaehaerys. His father was Balon Targaryen, who was Jaehaerys' second son. And as Lady Wynne said, the debate about who should rule between Balon and Rhaenys, who was the daughter of Jaehaerys' first son, spills over in Vis into Viserys' story and sows seeds for further conflict related to the order of succession that will begin with the calling of the Great Council as we said, likely to be included in the first episode. While Viserys is known to be kind, forgiving and conflict-averse, he is no pushover, and we're going to see him stick firmly by the major decisions he makes. 
that the civil war we're going to see on screen comes after a time of peace will carry some irony, and we can view Viserys as the character holding together that peace. In Fire and Blood, he's noted to be a generous character and embodies the era of decadence and prosperity that we're going to see come to an end. He's a really popular figure, and it will be interesting to see how the showrunners choose to portray a man who is eager to please whilst absorbing the weight of the significant challenges that are in his path. Fire and Blood is a dry historical recounting. So who is Viserys Targaryen really? Is he as pleasant as he is made out to be by the scholars when he's behind closed doors? We're going to see Viserys carry significant burdens on his shoulders. So I really look forward to seeing how that manifests as the writers give his character an extra dimension. And the, a final point about him, he was a dragon rider, which no doubt fed into his popularity, given the fact that he rode Aegon the Conqueror's gargantuan mount Balerion. Sadly, Balerion passes away sometime before the start of House of the House of the Dragon timeline. Viserys will be played by the wonderful British actor Paddy Considine. He's recently been in the Stephen King adaptation, The Outsider, which I enjoyed and Netflix's Peaky Blinders. But of course, we love him for his earlier role in Hot Fuzz. Yes, we do. <laughs> All right, up next, we've got Emma Aaron. She's, remember, the daughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne's daughter, Dayala, and Lord Roderick Aaron. Now, Princess Dayala died after giving birth to her daughter in 82 AC, and it's not clear how or even where Emma Aaron spent her youth, but we do know that in 93 AC, aged 11, she was wed to her first cousin, Viserys Targaryen. At the age of 15, Emma became the mother of Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen, her only daughter, all the more treasured because Emma struggled with fertility issues, suffering uh, through multiple miscarriages during her teen years. In the show, she's portrayed by Cyan Brooke, a British stage and television actress that many of you are most likely to have seen recently in Good Omens or Sherlock. And speaking of Emma, on to her daughter, Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. She is, like I said, the only child of Viserys and his wife Emma. She's first introduced to us readers in the short story The Princess and the Queen in 2013. She's a beautiful child with the silver-gold hair of the Targaryens who comes to be known as the Realm's Delight, no doubt in honor of how cherished she was by her parents as their only child. She's said to be a, a proud child and a little petulant, perhaps, because her parents doted on her so much, no doubt spoiling her in the process, but she was also charming and very popular at court and amongst her peers, her male counterparts, no doubt jockeying to be in her orbit, given her high place in the ruling house. And Rhaenyra will arguably be the central figure of this family drama. We can expect a lot of focus on how her sex impacts her role on House Targar in House Targaryen, specifically, and Westeros in general, and expectations for a future, which are going to play out across the run of the show. In Fire and Blood, she's stated to be four years old at the time of the Great Council, but we do expect her to be aged up somewhat for the show. Like a number of the other characters, she will be portrayed by two actors, Millie Alcock, an Australian film and television actor, as young Rhaenyra, 
and English actor Emma Darcy, who American audience might have seen in the Amazon Prime series uh, Hannah or Truth Seekers, will be adult Rhaenyra. Okay, so why don't we go to Daemon Targaryen? He is the younger brother of Viserys Targaryen and is rightfully known as the Rogue Prince. He's a natural warrior in contrast to his brother, and he really enjoys conflict and fighting and get, getting his hands dirty. When you think about the relationship between Viserys and Daemon, keep in mind Doran and Oberyn Martell from the main series. Viserys and Doran are sedentary, cautious characters, whereas Daemon and Oberyn are instinctual, passionate, fearless, intense, and you know quite aggressive at times. Although Viserys and Daemon are very different they do often complement each other in a pair, and I look forward to seeing what chemistry the brothers have on screen. Without getting too far into spoilers just yet, Damon is a character who loves to be on the streets of King's Landing and has no problem immersing himself among the hoi polloi of Fleabottom. This aspect of his personality will make him many friends in the capital, as well as defining him as a sort of rough-edged character not afraid of breaking the rules or, or subverting norms but what will other members of the ruling class make of him certainly the rogue prince is set to live up to his moniker and we're going to see him ruffle some feathers create tension and conflict and convey a level of cocksure arrogance that promises to make enthralling viewing so have your popcorn ready there might never be a dull moment when this scoundrel character is on our screens, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him. Damon will be played by Matt Smith, who broke through into the hearts of millions of fantasy fans for his role in Doctor Who, where he played the 11th Doctor. And up next we have my personal favourite, Princess Rhaenys uh, Targaryen, widely known as the Queen Who Never Was. She's the daughter of... Prince Aemon Targaryen and Jocelyn Baratheon passed over in the line of succession by her grandfather, King Jaehaerys, after her father's death, nearly a decade before the show begins. Wife of Lord Corlys Valerian of Driftmark, and these two are the ultimate power couple in Westeros. House Valerian is fabulously wealthy, thanks to Corlys's exploits in his youth, and the Valerian's own Valerian heritage has made them longtime supporters of House Targaryen, though as mariners and a naval force to be reckoned with rather than fellow dragon riders. More on Corlys in a moment. Getting back to Rhaenys, she's beautiful and strong-willed as only a Targaryen princess can be. A dragon rider from a young age, she's fierce in her conviction that her grandfather was wrong in his decision following her father's death, but she does nonetheless remain loyal to her family. Expect Rhaenys to be setting an example of female empowerment for her young cousin, Rhaenyra. She's already a fan favorite. As I said, she's my own personal choice for best character. Speaking of which, Rhaenys is portrayed by English actor Eve Best, who is known to audiences for her role in Nurse Jackie and as Wallace Simpson in the movie The King's Speech. And wait until you see her dragon. More on that shortly. So Lady Gwyn has introduced us to one half of what I consider Westeros' hottest power couple. Let me enlighten you on the other half. I wouldn't say better half, but other half. The Sea Snake, Lord of the Tides, and Master of Driftmark, Corlys Velaryon is a badass in his own right, of course. I mean, you'd have to hope so, being you know able to land a wife as beautiful, cunning, and powerful as Rhaenys. 
The Valerians of the Isle of Driftmark have been longtime allies of House Targaryen, also hailing from Old Valyria, and were some of Aegon the Conqueror's most loyal bannermen during the conquest. While the Valerians were not dragon riders like the Targaryens, they built their power in Westeros by controlling the seas. Just as past Lords of Driftmark before him, Corlys set sail at a very young age, I think it was about six years old, eventually becoming a captain and a knight. His explorations took him to the far corners of the map, beyond where other Westerosi captains had dared sail before, and as Gwyn mentioned, these voyages made him wealthier than the Lannisters or the Hightowers. He wed Rhaenys when he was in his 30s, after well-established for his naval prowess and his wealth. Lord Corlys was granted admiralty and a small council seat as master of ships by King Jaehaerys, positions that many previous lords of Rif- Driftmark had held before him and will hold after Lord Corlys as well. Uh, despite these great honors, he actually later resigned these posts in protest when the old king chose Prince Balon over pr- his wife, Princess Rhaenys, as his heir in 92 AC. In the same year, Lord Corlys' first child, a daughter, uh, Lena was born to him and Rainey's. Shortly after this, their son Lenor was born. When we first see Lord Corlys in House of the Dragon, we'll see him and Rainey's gearing up for another succession dispute following Prince Balon's death. Uh, this time, they've chosen to put forward their son, who we'll talk about in a moment, as prospective heir, presumably thinking that a male claimant will maybe sway more lords to their cause than backing Rainey's did nine years prior. Corlys will be portrayed by Steve Toussaint, the British actor. Just like other actors in House of the Dragon, he's got quite a resume spanning genres, and he's done voice work as well. He's known for his role of, as CISO in Prince of Persia, and he was also in Judge Dredd with Thrones favorite Lena Headey, uh, otherwise known as Cersei. Speaking of Lannisters, we've heard that he read Tywin Lannister lines when auditioning for the role, so expect kind of that flavor of cunning from the sea snake. Okay, let's look at... Corlys Valerian's son. Well, as we heard, Corlys Valerian is an important man in Westeros and very proud too. Corlys and Rhaenys have two children. Lena, the eldest, who was the babe in the belly when Prince Aemon Targaryen died in 92 AC, and Laenor. And they both have strong claims to the Targaryen succession. As Corlys's only son, and with his mother a prominent Targaryen, Laenor is also going to make a fine match for someone one day. He's going to come with the power and might of the Valarion fleet, and he himself is shaping up to be a dragon rider from an early age, having bonded with a dragon called Sea Smoke. With Corlys being so proud and ambitious, and Rhaenys having been overlooked for what she believes to be her birthright, the Iron Throne itself, Keep a close eye on Lena and Lenor because this is another generation of characters who could have reason to feel cheated and who have the power and money behind them to remain highly significant through the story. One detail about Lenor that's not too spoilery is that the maesters who authored Fire and Blood insinuate that he's gay. But of course, um, <clears throat> that need not get in his... W- in his way or is the way of his parents' political ambitions. As Grand Maester Melos notes, I do not like the taste of fish, but when fish is served, I eat it. Meaning that even a man who prefers other men can be expected to fulfil his duty, his dynastic duty. 
given that Fire and Blood is written in the conceit of sometimes ignorant authors, it will be interesting to see how Lenor's sexuality is portrayed in the show, his family's level of acknowledgement or acceptance, or whether it's truly as black and white as is suggested in Fire and Blood. Lenor Valerian will be played by two British actors, Theo Nate when he's young, and film and voice actor John McMillan after the time jump. So another noble family within the House of the Dragons kind of circle during this era was House Hightower. While there were only some minor Hightower characters in the main A Song of Ice and Fire series, back during this time, House Hightower was at the height of its power. Their seat is in Old Town, which is in the Reach. Uh, You may remember that Old Town is the home to the Citadel and its massive libraries where maesters are trained, as well as the the starry sept of the Faith of the Seven. I'm calling that out because Old Town is a major cultural epicenter steeped in Westerosi faith and tradition that was around actually before the Targaryen dynasty really began. Sir Otto Hightower was actually a second son of House Hightower. Uh, His elder brother ruled as Lord of the Hightower. Otto himself is described as a learned, methodical, and calculating man. While he was granted a position of power uh, as Hand of the King in the wake of Prince Balon's death, who was serving as hand at the time. That means that he'll be a relatively new hand at the onset of the show. To get better insight into the character, I kind of want to just take it from Otto Hightower's actor himself, uh, Reese Ifans. He's an astute, high-functioning political creature. He knows the machinations of the court better than anyone. He's kind of like a CCTV system in terms of knowledge of what's going on at any place with whom at any time. He's ruthless, but he struggles with some decisions that he's forced to make. Ifans is a Welsh actor who's recognizable for many, many roles, including as Luna Lovegood's father in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Not, uh, also starred in or was seen in Notting Hill, Little Nicky, Vanity Fair, Spider-Man, No Way Home, and many more titles. Now, Otto Hightower's daughter, Alicent, uh, is, is one of his two children. Much like Rhaenyra, Alicent will be portrayed by two actors in the show. English actor Emily Carey portrays the young Alicent, and this actually isn't the first time that they've played a young version of a prominent character. Carey also portrayed young Diana in Wonder Woman. With Alicent's father Otto very busy acting as Hand of the King, her mother has has died, Alicent must look for other friends and connections at court to bond with. As many of the early trailers and interviews indicate, she fills that void early on with a friendship with Princess Rhaenyra. The pair seem similar, kind of on paper at first, highborn, somewhat isolated and sheltered at court. However, only one of them is a princess, the realm's delight. Only one of them is a dragon rider. Without those titles and tools at her disposal, Alicent has to rely on her own cunning and her other courtly skills to survive. Later in the season, we'll see an adult Alicent portrayed by Olivia Cook. her most well-known role being that of Samantha, a.k.a. Artemis, in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. Next up, we have Sir Kristen Cole. Kristen Cole was born the son of a steward of Lord Dondarrion of Blackhaven in the Dornish Marches. And in the books, we can assume House Cole were minor nobility or landed knights of the Stormlands. Being minor nobles would be relatively typical of stewards in Westeros. Think of Veon Pool at Winterfell. And House Cole is noted to have a sigil featuring 10 black pellets on a scarlet field, which George recently stated at San Diego Comic-Con. 
uh, represents lumps of coal. So make what you will of that. (laughs) But in the show, his background is noted as of Dornish descent, the common-born son of the steward of the Lord of Blackhaven. He has no claim to lands or titles. All he has to his name is his honor and his preternatural skill with a sword. So the inclusion of a Dornish character is pretty interesting considering Dorn in this era has yet to be absorbed into the realm. But Dorn does feature in some of the world building of the time, uh, as well as in other places that we've seen in previews of the show. So this could be significant, or it could just be a cool plot point. With his noted skill with sword and Morningstar, according to Fire and Blood, he will enter the story with a bang at a tourney we expect to see very early in the season, and he's going to quickly become a fixture in the Targaryen court. Sir Kristen will be played throughout the series by English actor Fabian Frankel. Okay, so why don't we talk about another character called Mysaria. Mysaria is first noted in Fire and Blood when Damon is noted for visiting sex workers in the brothels of King's Landing. It says, a certain Lysini dancing girl soon became his favourite. Mysaria was the name she went by, though her rivals and enemies called her Misery the White Worm. So I, what I would say about Mysaria is that she's a curveball character, someone capable of doing unexpected things and shaking things up. As a Lysini, she's exotic and carries a certain air of mystery. Characters from the main series like Melisandre and Varys come to mind, outsiders who come to Westeros and then have a dramatic effect on the plot. Mysaria might be a lesser character than those two, but the point stands, I think. Like I said, she's mysterious, we don't really know anything about her background, and you'll find it difficult to know exactly what's going on in her head or what her motives are. I think she'll bring something new and exciting to the table, because with the story being so Targaryen-centric, it'll be interesting to see someone come in from another place and have an influence on the proceedings. Given her relationship with Daemon, she'll be well-placed to do just that, so keep your eye on this one. Mysaria will be played by Sonia Mizuno, who I recently watched star in Hulu's Debs, directed by Alex Garland, I like that, and she's also been in other Alex Garland productions, Ex Machina and Annihilation. Okay, so that's the characters. As we said earlier, there are a number of other characters who will be introduced later and whose actual existence would be a, a spoiler of sorts at this at this point in time. So we'll leave the next generation to be introduced another time. We've got a, plenty of time to talk about these characters. And speaking of spoilers, going forward... Spoilers are... Books. We had to take that sample. I know you love it. So why don't we next talk about dragons? Because, you know, in their own way, dragons are characters too. They are going to have a personality in the show. In A Game of Thrones, there were three dragons with limited screen time. We had to sort of watch them grow from Dragon's Eggs. But this time around, HBO have been practicing and so House of the Dragon will live up to its name with a whole cast of dragons, each with their own colouring and personality, according to showrunner Ryan Condal, who confirmed that the production team 
have thought long and hard about these magical creatures. Lady Gwyn, why don't you give us some background on dragons? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I think I'm almost more excited about dragons than anything else. So... At this point in Targaryen history, there's an absolute surplus of dragons. You've got hatchlings, drakes that have never been ridden, some of which are never named, and dragon eggs galore. In Fire and Blood during this era of Targaryen history, there are 21 named dragons. But we'll be focusing on the dragons we know, or can anticipate, will be seen in the show. When House Targaryen came to Dragonstone 12 years before the Doom of Valyria, they brought five dragons with them. We can assume that the tame dragons that we'll see in season one are all descended from those five. Only one of the Valyrian dragons, that is Balerion the Black Dread, would still be living when Aegon I and his sisters conquered Westeros about a century after the Doom. Dragons are said to be fire-made flesh, and their flames range from the mildly dangerous fireball of a hatchling, which can set normal tinder alight to the furnace-like flames of an adult dragon like Balerion, whose fiery breath could melt stone and steel. See the Iron Throne, for an example of what he was capable of, uh, not to mention Harrenhal. Dragonbone is a highly prized substance for its strength and flexibility, and it is black due to its high iron content. And keep an eye out, because you just might see a weapon made of dragonbone in the show. As long as dragons have ample food and freedom of movement, they never stop growing. When hatched, they're roughly the size of a small cat, but within a year or two, their wingspan can reach up to 20 feet, and many can be mounted by their rider at this time. And for this, we have the example of Daenerys riding Drogon, who had been roaming freely in the area of Slaver's Bay for the better part of a year and was about two years old uh, at the time she rode away with him. And the mechanism by which Targaryens bond with their dragons, so is currently unknown. But George has said that the Targaryen practice of incest was intended to keep their bloodline pure to help them better control their dragons. This taken with the fact that in all the Empire of Old Valyria, there were only 40 families who were considered dragon lords, seems to imply that there is something special about those bloodlines, possibly magical, especially since dragons are reputed to be connected with the presence of magic in the world, something we first hear about in A Clash of Kings, when Quaith tells Danny that a fire mage they see in Karth has benefited from the birth of her dragons. His skills have grown immeasurably because her dragons exist. And later in the same book, Haline of the Pyromancer's Guild tells Tyrion that he had been taught that magic had begun to go out of the world the day the last dragon died, and that he thinks the success of their wildfire production is a hint that there are dragons in the world again. So one more thing. Legend has it that wild dragons once existed in Westeros, and indeed probably in the world over. Targaryen dragons, or Valyrian dragons in general, are special due to the fact that they have been, for lack of a better word, tamed and are ridden by humans. The extent to which magic was involved in this is something I think that we are all looking forward to learning more about. Yeah, this really is the dragon show. And according to the showrunners, there's going to be nine dragons in this season alone. So I think we should talk about the ones that we think are nailed on to be in this season. 
Last week, we actually ran a series of dragon polls on our Twitter, that's at Radio Westeros, and the results were clear. There's one dragon that more people are looking forward to seeing than any other who ran away with the results, not only in her round one grouping, but also in the finale up against all the other winners. And that very popular dragon is Vagar. Emily, what do you have to tell us about Vagar? Yeah, well, a lot. <laughs> We're going to start with Vagar, not only because of those poll results, but also because she's the oldest living dragon that we're expected to see uh, in House of the Dragon. She's the only surviving dragon from the age of Aegon's conquest about 100 years prior, which is when she had her first rider in Visenya Targaryen, the warrior queen and one of King Aegon's uh, brides. The pair of them together were deadly. Visenya would command the Targaryen fleet from atop mighty Vagar, descending from the skies to burn enemy ships. Visenya, was, Visenya also knew how to use the might of her dragon in diplomatic situations, securing the fealty of the North and Vale primarily through means of intimidation. Following the conquest, Vagar flew and fought with Visenya in the early Dornish Wars and during the bloody reign of her son, Magor the Cruel. Unfortunately for the she-dragon, Vagar outlived her first rider, Visenya. Taking up residence first at Dragonstone and later at the Dragon Pit in King's Landing, Vagar did not choose to take another rider for nearly three decades after Queen Visenya's death. This really speaks to the bond between them, and we'll talk about the bonds between dragons a lot, I think. It was ultimately Balon, the spring prince and father to Viserys and Daemon, who eventually sought out Vagar in his quest to become a dragon rider. Together, they brought fire and blood to House Martell and its vassals in Dorne before Balon died in 101 AC. By the time of the Dance of the Dragons, it's said that Vagar had grown almost as large as Beleriand the Black Dread had gotten. Her roar was so powerful that it was said to be able to shake the very foundations of Storm's End, and her breath could cook men alive. No living dragon at this time could match her for size or ferocity. According to Tyrion Lannister, Vagar was large enough that one could ride a horse down her gullet. Think, I mean, think about that. In terms of looks, we know more about Vagar's size, actually, uh, than her scales, coloring, etc., as those things weren't directly referenced in the text. After a lot of expressed interest from fans and artists alike, George's team clarified that she is bronze with greenish-blue highlights and has bright green eyes. Now, Vagar's got a few more riders to come that we'll see in the House of the Dragon. The next following Prince Balon being Lena Valerian, the daughter of Princess Rhaenys and Lord Corlys the Sea Snake. Lena, like her mother, who claimed a dragon young, claimed Vagar at the ripe age of 11, which is pretty incredible to imagine. It really speaks to her character that she's able to claim the oldest and mightiest dragon in Westeros just as a tween. Truly, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, uh, you know, as her mother is also a dragon rider. You'll hear about that in a second. Uh, and Vagar will have one more rider in her lifetime, uh, which is Prince Aemon Targaryen, Viserys and Alicent's second son. Much like the others before him, Aemon claims Vagar at a relatively young age. It's a pretty major plot point in season one how he does this, so we'll, you can expect to hear us covering this a lot more in future episodes. All right, next up, uh, we've got Caraxes, Q, 
huge deep red dragon nicknamed the blood worm by the dragon keepers in the dragon pit before he was claimed by his first rider considered to be the fiercest of the targaryen dragons he was born possibly prior to the reign of jaehaerys i and was claimed by jaehaerys's eldest son prince aemon in 72 ac and later by aemon's nephew prince daemon sometime prior to 105 ac by the time of the Dance of the Dragons, Caraxes is about half the size of Vagar, but is still the second largest of the Targaryen dragons. Unlike many of the others, Caraxes has much experience in battle, having been ridden by Prince Aemon in the Fourth Dornish War, and by Prince Daemon in his War for the Stepstones, which we actually expect to be a big plot point in Season 1, so we will see a lot of Caraxes uh, in battle situations, I'm sure. Um, my my personal favorite dragon, Maylis, and I'm wearing my Maylis shirt. Shout out, shout out to Sanrixian. See you in the chat. Thank you for the awesome shirt. Uh, she's also red, scarlet scales, pink wing membranes, and crest claws and horns of copper. She's called the Red Queen, and she was most likely born during the reign of Aegon I. She was large when claimed first by Princess Alyssa around 75 AC, who rode her joyfully until her death and childbirth in 84 AC. During this time, uh, Maelys was also noticed, noted to be the swiftest dragon in Westeros, easily able to outpace both Vagar and Caraxes, who were ridden by Alyssa's brothers, with whom she flew often. Maelys was claimed by Alyssa's niece, Princess Rhaenys, in 87 AC. She's said to be old and cunning and no stranger to battle, though we never actually see her at war until during the dance. And I want to point out something about these first three dragons, some of the mightiest of the Targaryen stable. They spent years together as the mounts of those three deceased siblings, Aemon, Balon, and Alyssa, and as such, they would have been part of a very close and very exclusive coterie. And we can speculate that the closeness between those humans would have extended to the dragons as well. Furthermore, the combinations of Vagar and Maelys and Vagar and Caraxes were also ridden by uh, married couples, Balon and Alyssa and Lena and Daemon, respectively, for a time. And Vagar was still being ridden by Aemon, Rhaenys' father, at the time that she claimed Maelys after Alyssa's death. And what I'm saying by pointing out all these connections is that we think, you know, there's a very good chance that these dragons were as close as family, as siblings, as married couples, as, as a father and a daughter at one time. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, there are things that will happen which will make it clear that dragons do feel these familial bonds and we'll definitely be keeping that in mind as these hostilities blossom amongst family members and we eventually see dragons some of whom once existed in these really close relationships fighting with each other and so now on to the younger beauties i feel like i bridged the gap a little bit with cyrax here um. <laughs> A large and formidable she-dragon is Cyrax. While not nearly as battle-hardened as Vagar or Caraxes, she's quite fearsome and older than some of the other dragons that we've yet to cover. She's described as having yellow scales. Uh, we don't know her exact age or lineage, uh, but we do know that she did lay several of her own clutches of eggs that hatched at least one dragon that we may see in later seasons. I know the chat was talking about that earlier. Contrasting the dragons that we've heard about so far, Cyrax only has one rider, Princess Rhaenyra. 
the young princess claimed, uh, claimed her she-dragon in 104 AC, uh, meaning that it's something that we can hopefully look forward to as a scene in season one. I don't know why they wouldn't cover that. Now, remember what I said a bit ago about Lena claiming Vagar at 11? In the books, Rhaenyra is only seven when she first mounts Cyrax. Given what we know about the age of the actors portraying Rhaenyra, we can assume that it, it may be a teenager in the show, but still quite young nevertheless. Um, I personally hope we do see this moment, as we've already heard cast and showrunners talk about the series' focus on the bond between Dragon and Ryder. Getting to see the realm's delight bond with Cyrex for the very first time would be amazing. Excellent. So why don't I round us up by talking about Sunfire and Sea Smoke? I'll begin with Sunfire. Sunfire will be King Aegon II's mount, a male dragon referred to as Sunfire the Golden due to his exquisite golden scales. I'm really looking forward to seeing how wonderful this dragon looks because as the production team will be well aware of, Sunfire is described to be very attractive in Fire and Blood. It says, Aegon's young Sunfire was said to be the most beautiful dragon ever seen upon the earth. Now, I know there's some bias from the maces who write Fire and Blood, and that beauty is subjective, but all the same, I'd love to have my breath taken away by a dragon who is just that bit more spectacular than the rest. With reflective golden scales and pink membranes on the wings, not to mention the golden bursts of fire he's noted to breathe, look out for Sunfire in House of the Dragon. He's a youngish dragon, so won't be anything like the scale of Vagar, for example, and I don't really particularly love the character who's going to be riding on his back. But he is one of my favorite dragons in Fire and Blood. And it will be interesting to see how he's portrayed and what level of detail is employed by the VFX team. And speaking of loving the dragon, but not the mount, this is a new way for the writers to play with our hearts. There's times this season when you're going to love the dragon but hate the rider and it's going to sort of divide us inside and that's what George R. R. Martin aims to do with his writing. I will be cheering for Sunfire nonetheless. I'll be cheering all the way. And yeah, next I just want to talk quickly about another dragon called Sea Smoke who we mentioned early, earlier. Sea Smoke is described in Fire and Blood as a young dragon, splendid grey and white beast. He's not as not going to be as large as the other dragons, and Sea Smoke is big enough, though, to fight and is quick and agile in the air. So being small, okay, you, you're going to get overpowered, but you, you, you're more sort of nimble in the air. And this is the mount of Lenor Velaryon, who is noted to have formed close bonds with the dragon from a young age. Given Lenor is going to be an important character to the story, expect to see this grey and white dragon in full flight somewhere this season. And we are in spoiler territory now, so just a double heads up. But of course, Sea Smoke will be claimed by another rider and have a prominent role in a later season. So we'll have to see who I'm talking about. You guys know I know that already. So we've named six dragons, but like we said, the showrunners have indicated that there will be nine in total this season. I don't really want to go into much depth, but why don't we name the other three? 
Lady Gwyn, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to name four. <laughs> well, I think uh, we've got Erex, Vermax, Dreamfire, or Moondancer. The four, I think, are the strongest possibilities. Erex and Vermax are young dragons belonging to Rhaenyra's uh, eldest two sons, one of whom has been definitely cast, and the second of whom, though his casting is unconfirmed, we could think he, he's going to possibly play a role in the plot late in the season. Uh, Dreamfire, once ridden by the old king's elder sister, Reyna, will uh, belong in this era to Alicent's daughter, Helena, who has been cast, though we never see Helena ride in Fire and Blood. So, you know, uh, it's possible Dreamfire could be left out, at least of this season. Um, but I think Moondancer is a very strong possibility for this season. She's ridden by Lena Valerian's daughter, Lady Bela. And she wasn't initially on my list of obvious choices because she doesn't really come into Fire and Blood until much later. But the cast listing on HBO's website specifically mentions that Bela Targaryen has a dragon called Moondancer. So I'm going to just throw her out there kind of out of nowhere as maybe one of the more likely to be seen, um, followed, of course, by Vermax, and then maybe between Arax and, uh, and Dreamfire for the third. All right, well, you know, we have other options, of course, so and I'll just mention them very quickly. Uh, because there are other dragons in existence at this time. The dragons once ridden by Jaehaerys and Alysanne, Vermithor and Silverwing, reside at Dragonstone after their riders' deaths, and they will eventually have riders in this story, though we don't expect to see that until season two. We still could potentially see the dragons, because they're at Dragonstone. Uh, there are a number of other children in the younger generation who will also have dragons. Among them, dragons called Stormcloud, Tyraxes, Tessarion, but I think we can safely rule those ones out at least until next season. And there are three other known dragons that exist in the story that uh, we know won't be featured until season two. Um, and we know that because uh, in a recent interview, showrunner Miguel Sapochnik uh, in Entertainment Weekly confirmed that we will see three wild dragons in a later season. So uh, he also mentioned that one of them is his favorite dragon to date. So that's cool. It's something to look forward to. And definitely uh, check out that interview in Entertainment Weekly if you haven't already, because he talked about dragons and how they made the dragons uh, for the show. And it's really just amazing. It's great insight onto their thinking um, about dragons. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Excellent. So we've gone through the characters and we've gone through dragons. Very exciting stuff. I think next we should talk about trailers because there's been some trailers HBO have thrown out. I'm sure everyone has consumed them in one way or another. And, 
you know, they've led to much excitement. We can all speculate what's going to try and piece them together and speculate what's going to be in this season and what, what isn't. So what I want to ask you guys is what did we learn about this first season from the trailers and what excited us? So Lady Gwyn, what excited you? The first eight words of the the main trailer, the one that's out there now, if you go to HBO's website, spoken by Patty Considine's Kin Viserys. The dream, it was clearer than a memory. That gave me absolute chills because a lot of fans and analysts have been thinking about and analyzing Targaryen dreams for years, trying to figure out how they all fit together. If there's a unifying theme or end state that these dreams are meant to bring about, what does it all mean? We argue about it. We speculate. We just, we have so many ideas about dreams. And here I think we have, for the first time, actual confirmation that centuries of dragon dreams have been pointing this dynasty towards one destiny which is what we expect to see in the main series. And guys, this is confirmed by George. It's not just the show saying things and or, you know, fleshing things out. This comes right from George. So given that this series is certainly set to explore ideas about destiny and the relationship of Targaryens to their dragons, I am so ready for more about those prophetic dragon dreams. I... I agree. Uh, I'm going to take it a different direction, though. I may be in the minority here, but I've always kind of been drawn to the series and the world of Ice and Fire because of the characters and the human conflict. Now, not to say I'm not hyped for dragons because I'm very hyped for dragons, but I'm also getting very hyped for some of these character relationships. So when I watched the trailers, I, you know, just paid a lot of attention to those relationships being teased out. Particularly of interest to me is the relationship between Princess Rhaenyra and Alicent. Uh, Fire and Blood didn't really re uh, flesh out their early friendship or relationship at all. And in fact, Alicent's role at court in those early days actually seemed to be more as a carer to the old King Jaehaerys than as any kind of playmate to Rhaenyra. So I'm excited to see House of the Dragon giving us some more insight or, or kind of creating their own narrative here about how these two young women at court grow up together and then eventually grow apart. I won't go into it here, but I highly recommend checking out Joe Magician's trailer breakdown if you're interested in film techniques, because he goes into something called the Kuleshov effect and how the trailer incorporates that framing footage back to back to imply meaning to really just extra hard drive home the idea of the souring relationship between Allison and Rhaenyra. I'm also watching Rainey's closely uh, as she's had some great dialogue in the trailers as well. And I can't quite pin her down. Is she stirring the pot, giving sage advice, carefully manipulating the younger generation? Maybe a combination of all of those things. I think only time will tell. Excellent. And we saw some footage of a battle which appeared to be at the Stepstones. And I'm going to talk about this from you know, the glimpses we saw in the trailer. This is when Corlys and Damon will be working together to defeat the triarchy of Lys, Mir, and Tyrosh. In the footage, the battle on the beach looks large and spectacular. And I think with the Targaryen civil war taking up quite a while to set up, you know, a good number of episodes before that actually comes into conflict. The showrunners will be very keen to give us a taste of war early on and remind us how breathtaking Game of Thrones can be. The battle scenes in Game of Thrones 
always looked great, didn't they? No matter what you say about the show, the battle scenes were always quite amazing. And with Miguel Sapochnik at the helm, who directed classic episodes such as Hard Home, we can expect something that sets a really high standard for the action sequences in House of the Dragon. In the trailer, we did seem to see a dragon at that battle, possibly sea smoke. I'm not sure, though. So the showrunners will be looking to uh, hook us in with some dragon action relatively early on. Okay, so that's uh, interesting to see what everyone's looking forward to from the trailers. Now we're going to go even deeper into spoilers and talk about what aspect or what scene we are most looking forward to this season you can say several things if you if you like to so lady gwen what are you anticipating the most and you know what do you have high hopes for gosh everything you know the the faithfulness of the of the adaptation george's involvement and his his obvious energy around this series dragons especially dragons did i mention dragons so many dragons. But really, the real something that excites me is the interplay of female politics. So you have these characters that we've talked about. Uh, Emily's talked about the relationship between Rhaenyra and Alyssa and, and Rhaenys, uh, Princess Rhaenys, the queen who never was. They're all major characters. And Rhaenys, I expect to be bringing her unique experience apparently to advise her cousin Rhaenyra and that friendship between the two younger women uh, is going to be something that really can be used to explore different facets of each one's personality, how that develops and maybe you know, twists and turns before the end of this season. And then of course you've got their individual responses to what the patriarchy demands from them and tells them what they can and cannot do and how that affects their relationships with each other and with their families. And they're all very different. We know that uh, going into it, especially from interviews, the, the way the show is going to portray it. I just think it's going to be very exciting exploration of um, how these three women are really playing a driving role in what's happening uh, in House Targaryen at this time. The show is going to be very different from the sprawling panoply of Game of Thrones, you know, really tightly focused on a single family and more or less, and certainly during this first season, one or two or maybe a third location, you know, the locations, it's not going to be all over the place like Game of Thrones. It's going to be more personal. And I'm really excited for that, more of a family drama thing framed by the pageantry of House Targaryen at the peak of their power, which is very different from what we saw in Game of Thrones. And I want to uh, drop a like a fun fact before I turn it over to Emily for her opinions. Um, Game of Thrones started with a budget per episode of $6 million and increased by episodes uh, by season seven to eight to 15 million. House of the Dragon is starting with a per episode budget of $16 million and, you know, I've seen the showrunners thanking their predecessors for that fact. And yes, they do owe them a lot because HBO is putting a lot of faith in them. But that is stunning. I mean, we're going to get dragons and uh, beautiful uh, settings in, in the um, Leavesden Studio <clears throat> virtual soundstage. They're able to do 
all kinds of settings without ever leaving. They don't have to take the whole show on the road. They could just do it in this one soundstage. It's just going to be so exciting. I agree. I think this means they can afford more than one wig for all the male Targaryens now. So <laughs> <laughs> I, of course, agree with everything you, you said up there. Um, but, you know, my brand, I'm, of course, going to talk a little bit about costuming and wigs and um, even the heraldry that we'll see uh, on display this season. They, George is hyped about the heraldry being more accurate. And you're going to see, I think, less of the super intricate, flashy, kind of non-realistic heraldry that that we saw a bit in, in Game of Thrones and, and now a little bit more simple pared down color palettes and um, something that that you may have actually seen uh, <laughs> in, in history. But I won't talk too much about that because I do have a background in theatrical wig design, so it's a little bit of a niche for me. Of course, I've been cracking up at some of the comments that Matt Smith and a few others have made about their wigs. I think Matt Smith said the power he wished he had as a Targaryen would be to change his hair color, dye his hair, <laughs> uh, so it wasn't silver white. You know, now now there probably will be a few misses here and there. Um, I think, like, we can all agree just in, from, in, from canon perspective, Rainey's. I would have loved to see her in her true kind of silver and black kind of dual tone hair representing her shared Targaryen silver and Baratheon black ancestry. Actually, I designed a wig for Lady Gwyn uh, that looked a lot like that. So, uh, but but regardless, uh, I'm really excited to see all the final edits. We've seen a lot of like early stills and things like that. But but some of the trailers have really gotten me very excited for a lot of the hair. Excited to see a wide variety of kind of Valyrian hairstyles. You know, we we really just had the three Targaryens in in Game of Thrones, and and really only Danny had an interesting hair story going on there. But now half of the main cast like it seems has that characteristic Valyrian platinum hair and it'll be so cool to see the different expressions of that and how they use that to distinguish the characters a little bit more moving forward as for the costuming it already feels a little bit different from thrones which it should a lot happens in the realm of fashion in 200 years time as we know from real life um, I'm not a historical costumes expert, so don't expect me to get like too hung up on historical accuracy, especially in a fantasy story. But instead, I'm I'm already geeking out about things like the details on, uh, you know, Viserys' crown or some of the elaborate embroidery. Uh, I do hope that we'll get some of that. That was something that was that was really well done in the Game of Thrones. So I hope to see more. So, like both of you, you know, I'm excited for. Many reasons in this show, story and production. But one thing I'm really looking forward to is seeing House Targaryen in their pomp. The Targaryen characters in Game of Thrones are all disenfranchised in one way or another. Aemon is this quiet maester on the wall who, is, he chose this, but you know, he, he gave up his Targaryen birthright and watched from afar as Robert Baratheon shattered the dynasty. And then Jon Snow's true heritage is kept secret and he, he's in Winterfell as the quote-unquote bastard and he also ends up on the wall. And then there's Viserys and Daenerys and their exiled royalty attempting to gain enough power to restore their house to former glories. 
But here in House of the Dragon, we're going to get to actually see this former glory. And I think it's going to be a real treat. It will be like visiting Rome before the Empire fell. I want to be placed in that period of Targaryen opulence and prosperity at their absolute peak before we see the cracks appearing, which are going to grow exponentially. Then the succession struggle is going to tear the whole family apart and the realm with it. And we're going to go from peace to chaos very rapidly and learn how fragile political peace can be. A theme which, as we all know, resonates in the real world and as much today as it ever did. So there's a handful of reasons to look forward to House of the Dragon Season 1. And I'm sure you listeners and watchers have got your own things that you're going to be interested in and looking forward to seeing. So now I want to take up the question another notch and ask you guys, totally spoilerific, what parts of the entire story, you know, not even limited to this season, what House of the Dragon moments are you really, really excited about in the whole future of this tale? Lady Gwen, why don't you set us off? There are so many amazing moments in this story that it's, I find it really hard to pick just one. Uh, I did pick one, um, but I'm going to preface this with my answer might change next week or tomorrow. I just did. But today, I think something that I'm really excited to see is uh, Ewan Mitchell as Aemon Targaryen. And that is because... I happen to love this actor. He's best known to most U.S. audiences as Osworth, a.k.a. Baby Monk from The Last Kingdom. And uh, Aemon is a character that I loathed from the first time he came on page, even as a little kid. But seeing such a talented actor, someone that I've really got a soft spot for in this role, I think is going to be really satisfying. It's, it's actually making me look forward to this uh, seeing this character on screen more than I would have done if the casting had been different. I'm, I'm not going to lie. So, of course, after everything we go through with the character of Aemond Targaryen, the results of the showdown between him and his uncle Daemon over the God's Eye, which I anticipate would be season three-ish or four if they go four seasons. They, it might push into that one. But uh, I think that's going to be one of the most satisfying moments of television that we've had in a long time, possibly to rival some of the great impactful deaths uh, that we saw in Game of Thrones. Of course, it's also going to be bittersweet since uh, Aemond won't go down alone. And I expect I will be shedding some bitter tears for the dragons in that scene, along with uh, my cheering. I'm right there with you. Gonna have to edit out all my like heavy breathing as you talked about that. So for me, my answer, let's see. Well, one of the one of the most tense and exciting moments of the dance to me is actually right at the onset of what we call the Dance of the Dragons. When a king of Westeros dies, there's, of course, protocol for how that is to be handled. You know, bells are rung, lords are alerted, etc., etc. However, that isn't what happened, as we know, when King Viserys died. With Princess Rhaenyra away on Dragonstone with her children, Alison and her sons had home court advantage at the Red Keep when the king died, and they successfully quashed the news from getting out for a little while, instead convening a secret council, which is often referred to as the Green Council. Hand of the King and her Alicent's father, Otto Hightower, 
Queen Alicent herself, along with others such as uh, Kristen Cole of the Kingsguard, Maester Orwell, Larry Strong as well, uh, all convened. And they put forth the idea that Prince Aegon, Alicent's firstborn, was was really the true heir, uh, going against the stated original wishes of, uh, of Viserys himself. Furthermore, they considered Rhaenyra and her sons a, a threat. And, you know, when one council member, Lord Lyman Beesbury, dared suggest that Rhaenyra was, in fact, the rightful heir and named heir, he was, it's a little murky on the details, but either imprisoned and then executed or straight up executed. But uh, he meets his end for voicing that opinion and is considered the first official death of the dance. What followed that was a lot of scheming, jailing potential dissenters and black loyalists. And one Kingsguard member's spirited escape from the castle with King Viserys's crown uh, as the news of his death slowly trickled out and eventually became public knowledge. How this all plays out, I think, is going to be a really exciting moment in television, whether it's spread, you know, potentially end of season one and into season two or what. Uh, I, I think it'll be really cool to see how they take it. And I think we'll all be on the edge of our seats uh, when it happens. For me, there's if we're going to look beyond the first season into the greater story, there's a number of scenes which I think are going to translate extremely well to the screen. But my pick is going to be the story of the twin brothers, Eric and Eric Cargill of the King's Guard. As a huge fan of the Song of Ice and Fire series, I want to highlight that we're told about these two as early on as brand two of A Game of Thrones, where it says the twins, Sir Eric and Sir Eric, who had died on one another's swords hundreds of years ago when brother fought sister in the war the singers called the Dance of the Dragons. So yeah, here we are. This proves how much thought George had put into this world building around Westeros, even in that really early stage of writing a, a Game of Thrones. And when we finally got the fuller story, yeah, it didn't disappoint. It, it was brilliant. The two brothers were sworn to serve together, but then pledged themselves to opposing sides in the Dance of the Dragons. In Fire and Blood, we get this. Sir Eric had sworn his sword to Aegon, Sir Eric to Rhaenyra. In the song, each brother tries to persuade the other to change sides, failing. They exchange declarations of love and then they part knowing that when they next meet it will be as enemies so yeah love and hate all mixed together that's classic george as the conflict grows increasingly violent Kristen cole is going to send Arik to infiltrate dragonstone and assassinate either rhaenyra or her children it's unclear what the exact order was in fire and blood so and that's done in the hope he could use his identical appearance to pass himself off as his brother. I think this sequence in my head, it's always been very cinematic. Someone on a small skiff in the waters outside Dragonstone, sneaking in to the castle and fooling the guardsmen, dressing up as his brother. And eventually, Eric meets Eric and they end up having a long fight and they're perfectly matched of course because they're twins and ultimately they die on each other's swords i think that it could be a really 
a really emotive conflict scene and that's the type I enjoy the most. I don't think a single moment in The Dance of the Dragons captures the futility of an inter-family fight to the death so poignantly. The very essence of the wider story plays out in that one short sequence in Fire and Blood. So I, I think on screen it could be so tense, gripping and devastating if they get it right and I think they will do. And I would guess that this scene would probably come early in season two. I want to say, you know, this is, well, I could, we can plug our Dance of the Dragons series, which is co-produced with History Westeros. And I, I think so far we've done four episodes and we're working on the fifth one. I think that uh, there's a good chance that the seasons might actually fall very close to or at least the, the first couple might actually fall very close to the way we've got those episodes split up because there's a certain event that I think could be the end of season one. Uh, I know a lot of people have been chattering about this. Uh, that occurs at Storm's End. It would be a very uh, dramatic way to end the season. And uh, that's how we ended our first uh, Dance of the Dragons episode. So looking for a recap prior to watching the season, check that one out, because I think that would be very much on point for season one. So earlier today, we had a surprise because uh, the BBC Radio, Radio 5 Live, which has got uh, an enormous following, by the way, they have over 5 million weekly listeners. They got in contact and wanted an interview like one hour in advance and we had the plumber over and we were just not ready for it. And Lady Gwyn stepped up bravely. <laughs> I sort of cowered, cowered away. Lady Gwyn is like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And so she went on uh, BBC Radio 5 Live today. And it, it was a short but sweet segment, wasn't it, Lady Gwyn? It was short. <laughs> Three and a half minutes, I think, maybe. Uh, three questions, but it, yeah, it was sweet. They, the, the um, presenter was very, very kind, but he didn't know much. <laughs> get, we saved the deep lore for the channel, right? <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he wanted to know some things, but um, yeah, it, it was fun. We uh, got, got to give some opinions, and we got to plug the podcast. Uh, so. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to draw things to a close. But before we go, I wondered if you guys just off the cuff had any ideas. If I ask you, what can House of the Dragon do differently to sort of not fall into the same pitfalls? Because Game of Thrones, a lot of people loved it, but the last couple of seasons didn't go down well. I know there are some people that did love it and I don't want to sort of offend them, but let's face it. There was a lot of criticism and there, there were there were things that it, the show did not get right. So what can House of the Dragon do to avoid such pitfalls, Lady Gwyn? Well, for one thing, they're going to have, and this actually came up in the, that interview you were just talking about, uh, they're going to have the benefit of, of a complete story. And I think if they stick with the story and they uh, maintain a relationship with the story's creator... Uh, which are two things, one of which, uh, you know, Game of Thrones had no control over and the other one, which they did, 
you know, things are going to be, I think, really good because everything right now, all the previews, uh, all of the advanced press, it looks and sounds really good. And when you hear actors and um, everyone involved in the production talking about how great the scripts are and the stories and, you know, what the and and George talking about how wonderful uh, the scripts are and how what a great job they're doing expanding and fleshing out what's basically a history book that gives us a lot to look forward to and a lot of hope that this is being done right so i think uh, as long as they just stay the course that they appear to be on i don't think we have uh, much to worry about and we can just sit back and enjoy the ride for a few years yeah i, I think it's it's more of a manageable story like a song of ice and fire there's a point where it sort of goes outwards you know it, it, it's there's around the feast dance like George had to split the books it, it became such a large story I think that it was sort of difficult to put that down a you know the a tunnel and you cut off this character and cut off that character and then in the end it created a little bit of a mess because of what George calls the butterfly effect you you cut a character in season three or something just to keep things succinct and then in season seven, you, you might have a big hole in, in, in your structure be, because of that decision. So I don't think they need to squeeze any part of the structure. I think this will convert to the screen a lot easier and more naturally than A Song of Ice and Fire. Emily, have you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think the the, you know, one of the biggest pitfalls that Game of Thrones fell into was they knew the ending. And so they kind of reverse engineered some things to get there. And I think, you know, there's danger of that, I suppose, in, in certain storylines in Fire and Blood, because as it's written as a history book, we don't necessarily know the motives and motivations behind each character. However, I think the showrunners, like you said, are working very closely with George. They've they've decided kind of on one set of canon and one narrative and, and are really creating these characters to be three-dimensional. And I, I have faith that they're going to carry that through all the way to the end rather than getting halfway and kind of just saying, eh, well, you know, the dance was supposed to end this way. So I guess we'll just, you know, forget about the Iron Fleet or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that they're trying to you know, fill in the gaps now that maybe are there in Fire and Blood so that when they get, you know, two, three seasons down the road, they don't have to, um, you know, kind of either just not have any motivation and just have plot happen or or make it up on the fly. I think uh, I, have, I have high hopes. Yeah, so I think all, all three of us agree that, you know, we can expect a lot from this show. I don't think we're going to end up being disappointed I don't think that it's going to come to the final season and, and there'll be like major pacing issues or the sort of thing that plagued the season seven and eight of Game of Thrones. I don't think there's any reason to sort of be afraid that you're going to be let down or anything like that. I think it, it's going to be good and everyone's making the right noises. So as a as a as someone who's a book fan, really, that... You know, you know, by the end of Game of Thrones, I wasn't that invested in the show. I, I'm feel invested in the show now. I want to see the history books, the sort of grey pages of this tome, you know, come to life and see these dragons and, you know, see it in bright colour on our screens. I, I think that it's going to be excellent. I'm definitely going to give it a, a great chance. 
and hopefully it's going to impress everyone and book readers included okay so i think we will wrap up this early preview episode i hope that you will all come back every thursday at the same time seven eastern and or get the podcast version you know soon after it's uh, been good to be back live streaming and if you want to be a patron go to patreon.com slash radio westeros come and join us be a patron for the show season and yeah we'll We'll leave with our patron rollout for the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels at the end of every episode. And why don't we get on that now? So goodbye, everyone. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons, Erodo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Yuna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infanderis, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorraine, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only arsling you need, Alex, Allie B, Allie C, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Amber, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Archmaster Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, anime lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Oneirik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioesteros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Bye for now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? 
Go stream something new on Hulu. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 